I am so thankful to see all of you here. Uh, this, is the, this is the highlight of the year for our church um, to get to reach out to you and to uh, fellowship with you. The privilege is all ours, and we're just um, grateful that you're here and, and hopeful that you walk away from this weekend just closer to Christ and more grateful for the salvation that you've received. And that's, that's our prayer. We've been praying for you as a church for uh, many, many weeks now and thankful for you and thankful that you're here uh, fellowshipping as the church universal. And that's what we uh, have as our goal here. Would you pray with me for just a moment? Our Father, we would come to you right now with one prayer. And that prayer is that we would see Jesus. That we would like to have a closer view of Christ, our Savior. And at this moment, we have only the Word of God. We have only our, the eyes of our faith with which to see Christ. And we look forward to that day when we will lay eyes on Him. When we will see Him face to face and we will be like Him. For we will see Him just as He is and we will become as He is. But Lord, until that day, we have this glorious Bible. We have sola scriptura, that through scripture alone, we see Christ. And so it's our prayer today that we would see Jesus. And we believe that would bring you honor and you, your, you glory because you love to exalt Christ. And we would do that as well. We pray these things in his name. Amen. I want to just tell you a story. It's a story about redemption. It's a very simple story. It's about a man who went to face his death and was very surprised to find that he came away with his life. The story is set a long time ago. It's set in the 10th century BC in ancient Israel. And the story has five characters. And so while we wait for the curtain to go up, we're reading the program, so to speak. I want to tell you about these five characters so that you're familiar with them as we go through the story. The first character you're very familiar with, his name is David. He was the king of Israel who made his first big splash by defeating the Philistine champion Goliath when David was still just a a boy, a teenager. David became mighty in battle. He became a commander of men under the first king of Israel. But the king at the time, who was our second character, King Saul, He grew jealous of David. He grew to hate him. In fact, Saul hated David so much that he went to great lengths to try to kill David, both personally and with his own army. And all the while, though, David righteously stayed loyal to Saul. He didn't wish Saul any harm. And even as Saul was forcing him into exile and into hiding, David still loved Saul. Well, eventually, because God's blessing left King Saul, Saul was killed in battle against the Philistines. Years earlier, you know the story, David had been anointed the next king of Israel by the prophet Samuel. But now that Saul was dead, chaos and struggle and fighting began to happen. David was made king of one tribe of Israel, the tribe of Judah, his own tribe. And he set up his household in the city of Hebron. Meanwhile, Saul's son, Ishbosheth, he was crowned king over all the other tribes. And so now, of course, civil war broke out. And there, was, there, there were battles raging. There was intrigue. There was murder on this side, murder on that side between these two factions. 
But the irony is, is that because David knew that Saul had been the previously anointed king of Israel, he wished no harm whatsoever to Saul's son, Ishbosheth. He didn't want any harm to come to him. In fact, when Ishbosheth was eventually betrayed and murdered by his own people, and his head was brought to David, expecting a great reward from David, David executed the men who murdered Ishbosheth. Subsequently, David was crowned now the undisputed king of Israel. But to the outsider looking in, to anybody in the ancient Near East looking inside this scene, the civil war and the eventual murder of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, it looked pretty typical for a new king. Because the general order of business in the ancient Near East, when a new king came to power, the game plan was always pretty much clear the playing field of all potential threats to the throne. What does that mean? It means that you killed all the family and the supporters of the former king. Everyone knew that was standard practice. So we have David, the current and rightful king of Israel. We have Saul, the former and dead king of Israel. Third character we have is Jonathan. He's another son of Saul, and he was killed in battle right alongside his father. But Jonathan was the best friend that David ever had. They loved one another deeply. They had a friendship that knew no bounds. And Jonathan had seen how horrible his father Saul was. And he declared that David ought to be the true king of Israel. Jonathan was humble. He was kind. He had no aspirations toward the throne. He just wanted to serve David. In fact, he helped David escape from his own father. He helped him escape from Saul. But he saw the writing on the wall. He believed that David would eventually become king of Israel and David might need, according to the practice of the times, he might need to wipe out the entire family of Saul according to the usual practice. And so when both David and Jonathan were young men, 1 Samuel 20 records Jonathan making David make a promise to him. And he says this, if I'm still alive, show me the steadfast love of the Lord that I may not die and do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever. When the Lord, not if, when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. And Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David saying, may the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies, all of them except me, basically is what he's saying. And Jonathan made David swear again by his love for him, for he loved him as he loved his own soul. But then Jonathan died. And when Jonathan was killed in battle, he had one young son, our fourth character, named Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth never really had it very easy. He was just five years old, just a little boy, when news of the Philistine victory and the death of his father Jonathan and his grandfather Saul came to his household and Mephibosheth's nanny grabbed him and ran, but in her haste, she dropped him and ostensibly broke both of his feet. And in their haste to escape, she grabbed him up again. Now the screaming little boy in agony being taken from his own home and taken into exile. Both of his feet were broken in some way and... They would never heal properly and he was lame in both feet. He was probably able to walk to some degree but with great pain and humiliation as his crippled feet didn't work right and didn't look right. He would never be a great warrior and because his father Jonathan was dead and his grandfather Saul was dead, Mephibosheth would never be a great anything. 
As a matter of fact, 1 Chronicles 8 and 9 tell us that he had originally been named Merib Baal, meaning the one who fights against Baal. Baal was the chief Canaanite deity in that area. What high hopes his father Jonathan must have had for him. You will battle for Yahweh and against the false gods. But now, now he's just Mephibosheth, which means one who scatters shame. He's the shameful one. He didn't even have a home of his own. And as a young man, now with a small son himself, Mephibosheth relied on the kindness of a wealthy man named Machir to care for him. He just lived in somebody else's house. It's pretty likely that David didn't even know Mephibosheth existed because David had long been in exile and in hiding when Mephibosheth was born. There's a fifth character. He's minor, but he's important, and his name is Ziba. Ziba was in charge of Saul's estate. Saul's dead. Jonathan's dead. There's no one left to have all the goodies on this estate. It had fallen to him and his 15 sons and his 20 servants to keep the estate of Saul, but there was no master of this estate. So essentially, Ziba lived like a nobleman. It's pretty likely he wanted to keep it that way. So here are our characters. We have David, the firmly established king of Israel. We have Saul, the former king of Israel, who's now dead and his supporters are dead. We have Jonathan, the son of Saul, who loved David, but so sadly died in battle alongside his father Saul. We have Mephibosheth, the unknown and the the crippled grandson of Saul and the son of Jonathan. And we have Ziba, the estate manager who lived like a king off the wealth of his dead master Saul. So now the curtain goes up and the first scene we see is the house of Machir. He's a wealthy Israelite and this is the place where Mephibosheth is staying with his little family. You, you would picture green pastures with, with sheep and goats everywhere in a large palatial house. He was a very wealthy man, an influential man. And in some little part of the house on this estate, Mephibosheth was staying. Here's what Mephibosheth knew. He knew that his uncle, Ishbosheth, had been murdered. And for all Mephibosheth knew, he'd been killed by David's men. There wasn't CNN, there wasn't Fox News. You couldn't go and find out what actually happened. What did he know? Ishbosheth is dead. David's the king. Practices say David killed him. He also knew that the slaying of the previous royal family was normal procedure. That's what you do. And he knew that to this point, King David didn't know he existed. So knock at the door. Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, son of Saul. The king has summoned you. Mephibosheth very likely told his family goodbye. And he went slowly and painfully to the house of King David. And Mephibosheth would have every reason to believe that he was going to his death. But what Mephibosheth didn't know was what had just happened in David's palace. Turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 9. And in 2 Samuel 9, there's a whole different scene being played out here. It's not a scene of judgment and retribution and death and vengeance. It's a scene of grace and kindness and abundant love. But Mephibosheth, he doesn't know this yet. 
He doesn't know. For all he knows, he's going off to die. What will David do with Mephibosheth? What will he do, if I could put it this way, with the last man who can really threaten his throne, who can really threaten his kingdom? What will he do? 2 Samuel 9, beginning in verse 1. And David said, Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba, and they called him to David. And the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. The king said to him, Where is he? And Ziba said to the king, He is in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel at Lodabar. Then King David sent and brought him from the house of Machir, the son of Amiel at Lodabar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold, I am your servant. And what we see here is this magnanimous king, a king filled with grace and kindness. The story seems to center around Mephibosheth. But as we see in this narrative, it it forces us to focus on the real main character. The real main character of this story is David. To see what really is the main feature of the story, it's not Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth is just the vehicle. It's just the wheels by which we're taken for the Holy Spirit to highlight King David, the fact that King David is Mephibosheth's only hope. He's his only hope. In fact, I want to show you three reasons that David is Mephibosheth's only hope. The first reason, David is the only power holder. He's the only power holder. And this story has two stark contrasts in it. The total power of David and the total weakness of Mephibosheth. When David first became king, it was amidst turmoil and uncertainty and civil war. Not anymore. David is now the undisputed king. In fact, this is emphasized over and over again in this chapter. Eleven times we see the king, 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 the king. Who's the king? David's the king. There's no other hope for Mephibosheth. Uncle Ishbosheth is long dead. No one else has any power. And on the flip side, we see the story emphasizing the total weakness of Mephibosheth. He had nothing to offer. First of all, he was physically weak. The story starts and ends, verse 3 and then verse 13, we'll see, stressing the fact that Mephibosheth was lame in both feet. He started off as the son of a prince, a likely heir to the throne of Israel. Now, not only could he not fight for Israel, He couldn't even move physically. He was physically weak. He was also socially weak. He was considered an outcast. Did you notice that when David asked Ziba, is there someone in the house of Saul to whom he could show kindness? He told him of this son of Jonathan and added, he is crippled in his feet. Now, why would he say that? It's just some descriptor. Why would he, you know, it's it's as unusual as saying there's the son of Jonathan. He's the guy with red hair. Well, who cares? Why would Ziba make mention of this? I think it's very likely that for selfish reasons, he was trying to exploit the weakness of Mephibosheth. Listen to this. 
based on a rumor about David. Now, what are we talking about here? The rumor was, and everybody knew it, is that David hated lame people. David hated people who were crippled. Now, where on earth would that come from? When David first became king, he wanted to establish a capital city that united all the tribes of Israel as one nation. So he moved out of Hebron and he went to a city that was more, uh, that was more neutral. So he wanted Jerusalem. Small problem. Jerusalem had people in it. They were inhabited by the Jebusites. These are a group of Canaanites. They had been previously banned by God, but Israel had never successfully ousted them in the conquest. So there they are still hanging on to this little city. And so 2 Samuel 5 records that David marched on Jerusalem. Small problem. Jerusalem is spectacularly well defended. It's surrounded on three sides by valleys. And so it's almost impossible to take this city. In fact, the Jebusites were so confident that they could defend Jerusalem that they taunted David. They called to him over the wall and they said, even the blind and the lame could defend this city. But David achieved a military marvel. What he did was he got some of his men into the narrow 50-foot-long water shaft known today as Warren's Tunnel, and David's men took the city. Here are the instructions that he gave them before they did this. When he made his plan, he told them in 2 Samuel 5, verse 8, whoever would strike the Jebusites, let him get up the water shaft to attack the lame and the blind meaning the Jebusites who were hated by David's soul. In other words, David was mocking the Jebusites by calling them the name they called themselves. But from this, a rumor, gossip developed very quickly. 2 Samuel 5, the end of verse 8, therefore it is said, what does that mean? That means it's not actually true. Therefore, it is said, the blind and the lame shall not come into the house. Into whose house? Into David's house. David wasn't talking about physically disadvantaged people. He was talking about the Jebusites. So what does it look like is happening here? Looks like Zebus taking the opportunity to point out that Mephibosheth, according to the rumor, according to the gossip about David's decree about the blind and the lame, was socially weak and he was unacceptable. Yes, there's Mephibosheth, but he's lame in his feet. Ha, I get to keep the estate. He's physically weak. He's socially weak. Mephibosheth was also genetically weak. He was genetically weak. The fact is, he has the wrong DNA. He's the son of Jonathan, who's the son of Saul, which makes him a legal claimant to the throne of Israel. And this was as good as a death sentence. It would have been much, much better for him to be some unknown family, but he was from the previous royal family. So it's no wonder Mephibosheth enters the king's presence with fear and trepidation. He falls on his face. He humiliates himself before the king by awkwardly and painfully getting off of his crippled feet and onto his knees and onto his face to pay homage to the king. He has to give honor because he has nothing else to offer. As a matter of fact, the exchange, the the conversation between David and Mephibosheth, it, it demonstrates that David had all the power and Mephibosheth had none of the power. David's total power and Mephibosheth's total weakness. This greeting was a classic greeting in which a superior 
used the name of the inferior and the inferior in turn humbly acknowledged that he is inferior. David said, Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth answered, hey, Davy, how you doing? No. With his face on the ground, he said, behold, I am your servant. You have all the power. I have none. You have a sword. I have none. And between verses six and seven, we hold our breath. Ziba holds his breath. Mephibosheth may be one sword stroke away from bleeding out on the floor of David's court. And then we see in verse seven, and David said to him, do not fear for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan, and I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And right then you heard a clunk. That was the sound of Ziba's jaw hitting the ground going seriously. Oh, it's relief. It's joy. Mephibosheth, he can't believe his ears. Verse eight, and he paid homage. In other words, he stayed on his face. And he said, what is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? Mephibosheth is technically David's enemy. And yet he's saved by David. The only one who could judge him is also the only one who could save him. And we see the details of this happy ending beginning in verse nine. Then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, All that belonged to Saul and all his house I have given to your master's grandson. And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, according to all that my Lord, the king commands his servant, so will your servant do. Hopefully keeping the note of sarcasm out of his voice. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. And all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem for he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both his feet. Mephibosheth is bringing nothing to the table. David's bringing everything to the table. And now Mephibosheth is eating at David's table. The first reason David is Mephibosheth's only hope, David is the only power holder. He's the only power holder. There's a second reason that David is Mephibosheth's only hope. David is the only covenant keeper. He's the only covenant keeper. Now in the opening scene of this drama, David asked this question, presumably of his court advisors. Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show kindness for Jonathan's sake? It's not just, is there anybody I can say hello to? Is there anybody I can give a Starbucks gift card to? Is there anybody I can just kind of be nice to? Is there there anyone I can show kindness? It's the beautiful and rich Hebrew word chesed, covenant-keeping love, rich love, lavish love, extravagant love. Love based in a promise that I'm keeping. The author of 2 Samuel wants to make sure we get this three times. Verse one, kindness, chesed love. Verse three, show kindness, chesed love. Verse seven, I will show you kindness, chesed love, covenant keeping love, lavish love, extravagant love. Why? Because I remember my friend John. And I made him a promise before I even knew you existed. 
and I intend to keep that promise. But what is it that makes this covenant-keeping love so amazing? What makes the fact that for the sake of his promise, for the sake of his integrity, if we could put it this way, for the sake of his truthfulness, David would take Mephibosheth and completely change his life. Why is this amazing? Because when the covenant was made, it was made in private, it was made in secret between David and Jonathan. Jonathan is dead and David alone holds this covenant in his heart. Nobody else has it. Nobody is holding David to this promise except David. And if David decided not to keep the covenant, nobody would be the wiser and Mephibosheth is dead. David is the only covenant keeper. Why is David Mephibosheth's only hope? First, because David is the only power holder. Second, because David is the only covenant keeper. Third reason that David is his only hope. David is the only life giver. He's the only life giver. The moment that Mephibosheth painfully and humiliatingly bowed down to the ground before David, David held his life in his hands. The judgment was coming. There was no appeals court. There's no Supreme Court. There's no attorney to hire. There's no relative of Saul to come to the rescue. Mephibosheth could very easily die at David's hand. His body could be dragged away and David move on to the next item on his agenda while his servants clean up the mess. It could be that easy. But David gives life and he treats Mephibosheth as special, as set apart. It's very interesting to note that when the author of 2 Samuel records the conversations between David and Ziba, most of the time David is referred to as the king. But when David is addressing Mephibosheth, he's simply David. To Ziba, he's the king, but to Mephibosheth, he's just David, like a family friend, or even better, like family. We might even say like Uncle David. You remember what the condition of the covenant was between David and Jonathan? Basically, it was just, when you become king, just don't kill me and don't kill my family. That's all I'm asking for. Not asking for much more than that. So David does spare the life of Mephibosheth, but David's kindness goes far beyond the basic provisions of the covenant. He goes so far beyond what Jonathan ever imagined. He doesn't just spare Mephibosheth's life. He lavishes on him abundant life. He gives Mephibosheth three amazing gifts. He gives him, first of all, protection because of the covenant. As long as David is king, Mephibosheth will always be safe. He gives him provision He restores to him the entire estate of Saul. This is a beautiful estate three miles north of Jerusalem. And he orders Ziba and his 15 sons and 20 servants to work the estate and provide a healthy income for Mephibosheth. You remember where he was staying? He was in the the little guest quarters in the estate of Machir. And now he owns one. What a change. He gives him protection. He gives him provision. And he gives him position. David declares to Mephibosheth that he shall eat at the king's table always. He has full daily access to the king, not only to speak to him, but to fellowship with him, to eat with him. Essentially, David makes Mephibosheth a lord of Israel. He gives him protection, provision, position. He goes from hopeless to happy. He goes from poor to prosperous. If we could put it this way, he goes from downright shabby to Downton Abbey. 
that fast. But what's amazing is that David simply could have taken out his sword and ended it all. But instead he gave life as the only life giver who could do so. And now Mephibosheth's place was not to cringe and to kowtow and to crawl at the king's feet like the lowest servant. His place was to sit proudly at the king's table like one of the king's sons. Four times, verse seven, you shall eat at my table always. Verse 10, Mephibosheth shall always eat at my table. Verse 11, so Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. Verse 13, so Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem for he ate always at the king's table, 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 always at the king's table. David was Mephibosheth's only hope because David alone was the power holder. David alone was the covenant keeper and David alone was the life giver. Now, I don't know about you, but when I read little stories like this in the Old Testament, I always wonder, the 13 little tiny verses, why is this story here? Why is this here in the, in the massive scope of the redemptive history of the Bible? And as we've walked through this, I'm sure that you've sensed that we're really swimming in deeper waters. This is deeper than just David and Mephibosheth. There's one little phrase in this story that tells us that David is simply acting as a silhouette, as a model of someone much greater. Look at verse three with me. Is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of David? No, the kindness of God to him. We see the outline of David. We see the dark silhouette of David. And it becomes to become even more familiar to us because in the silhouette of David, we see a photograph, a color image, a portrait of another Davidic king yet to come. David gives us a picture of another king who's like David, who's better than David, who's descended from David. A sovereign king who alone is the power holder, who alone is the covenant keeper, who alone is the life giver. Our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, often called the son of David. The Reformation gave rise to the great solas, the the rallying cries of the essentials of the true gospel. And at the center of it all, at the core of the gospel is solus Christus, Christ alone. Because our faith is not based in a concept. Our faith is not based in a belief system. Our faith is based in and focused on and centered on a person. And that is Jesus that salvation is not offered through good works, that the church can't save you, keeping the commandments can't save you, Mary can't save you, baptism can't save you, penance can't save you, the Pope can't save you, that even just believing in God can't save you, that the path to forgiveness of sin has precisely one option, and that option is Christ. The great reformer, John Calvin, to whom we owe so very much, we owe so much, wrote, Quote, faith mounts up from Christ to the Father, yet he means this, although faith rests in God, listen to this, it will gradually disappear unless Christ who retains it in perfect firmness intercedes as our mediator. Otherwise, God's majesty is is too lofty to be attained by mortal men who are like grubs crawling upon the earth. In other words, As he goes on to write, faith in God is faith in Christ. Now, what's the connection? How does David paint a picture for us of solus Christus, 
Well, we need no, go no further than the words of Jesus himself, words in which he makes an audacious claim. At the time, a scandalous claim. Words in which he claims that he alone can provide reconciliation with the Father. You see, the three reasons that David was Mephibosheth's only hope are the same three reasons that Jesus is our only hope. Jesus is the only power holder. Jesus is the only covenant keeper. Jesus is the only life giver. Or as Jesus himself would say in this audacious, scandalous claim in John fourteen six, he said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. The definite article before everyone makes it very clear. There is no other option. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. What's the first reason that Jesus is our only hope of salvation? He is the only power holder. He says it this way. I am the way. Jesus said he was going away. And his disciples know the way that he's going. Well, apparently Thomas didn't. Because in John 14, Thomas asked the question, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? And so Jesus says, I am the way. He's not just blazing a trail and commanding others to go the way that he's taking. He is the way. He is the Savior. He is the Lamb of God who makes atonement. He is the only mediator by which the Father will accept us. He is the only one who speaks and the dead come out of their graves. There is no other way. In fact, listen to Jesus, his claim of exclusive ability to bring you to salvation, to bring you to the Father. I'm reading from Matthew 11. You don't have to turn there, but just listen. Listen to the emphasis in here. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Twelve references to himself in four verses. Who's the center? Who's the way? He is. Jesus, as fully God and fully man, he holds all the cards when it comes to your salvation. He is the way. He is the door. He is the gate. He is the path. He's the only mediator. He's the only high priest. He's the only acceptable sacrifice. He's the only hope. Like King David with Mephibosheth, Jesus is the only power holder. He is the way. Second reason Jesus is our only hope. He's the only covenant keeper. He said, I am the truth. Jesus' claim on truth is so exclusive. He doesn't just say, I have the truth. I possess the truth. I can point you to the truth. He says, I am the truth. One of the pillars and and the mainstays and the, the supporting columns in our understanding of the nature of God is the fact that God is true. All that he says is true. All that he does is true. He is always perfectly consistent with himself. Titus 1 verse 2, God never lies. Hebrews 6 verse 18, it is impossible for God to lie. In fact, I want to show you how true God is. In Exodus 34, when God showed Moses a partial view of his glory by passing by him, God made a declaration to Moses. You don't have to turn there, just listen. This is the declaration God made. He said, the Lord, the Lord, 
a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, chesed, covenant-keeping love, and faithfulness. Faithfulness means a quality of someone who stays true to his word. So God possesses steadfast love, and since that love is undeserved, we would call that grace and faithfulness, the quality of being true to your word. In other words, in showing Moses his glory, God declares to Moses that he is full of grace and truth. What did the Apostle John say of Jesus Christ in John 1.14? And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of what? Grace and truth. Why? Because they are one. I have a question. Jesus made a promise. He made a covenant, if you want to put it that way. He said, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. This is God, the second member of the Trinity, making the promise, making the covenant, that all who labor and come to Christ will receive grace. The Apostle Peter preached in Acts chapter 2 that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Here's my question. Who is there to hold Jesus, to hold God to that promise? No one, except for the fact that he is the truth. He is a covenant keeper, like King David with Mephibosheth. Why is Jesus our only hope? He's the only power holder. He is the way. He's the only covenant keeper. He is the truth. You can guess the last one. The third reason he is the only life giver because he said, I am the life. John 1, 4, in him was life and the life was the light of men. John eleven twenty five. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Listen, we don't need someone who can point us to eternal life. We don't need someone who can give us a map to eternal life. We don't need someone who can show us which road to go down to eternal life. We need someone who is the source of life. You have to have that. He didn't say, I can point you to life. He said, I am the life. And what kind of life is it that flows forth from Jesus? What kind of life is it? Is Jesus, who is the way and the truth, is he just going to barely squeak out your resurrection and barely get you to heaven? Are you going to just crawl across the finish line? Are you like a, are you like a, a, a batter at home plate and, and the pitch comes and, and you hit it and you hear the commentator saying that there's a line drive straight out to right field and the fielder's going for it and this is the fastest runner on the team and he's going around first, he's going to second. Oh, the, the ball has gotten by the, the fielder and it's going back to the wall and so the runner's going around the third and he's coming all the way to home. Wait a minute, the guy in right field, he is the one with the greatest arm on his team. Here comes the throw, here's the tag, the slide. Oh, he's safe. No. Jesus will take the bat and he'll get up to the plate and say, I've got this one and he'll just hit it out of the park and you will saunter to the winner's circle because the life that Jesus gives is not bare bones. It's not barely making it. This is chesed, covenant-keeping life. With Mephibosheth, David didn't just spare his life. He gave him goodness and graciousness. He restored his inheritance. He made him a Lord of Israel. 
with servants and property and privileges. God has said life-giving love is never bare bones. It's never just barely enough. It's lavish. It's extravagant. It's extraordinary. It's unrestrained. It's plentiful. Listen, just before Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, in the previous breath, he said, oh, in my father's house, there's so many rooms. And I'm going away to prepare a place for you. I'm, I'm getting it ready for you. And I'm going to come back and I'm going to bring you to myself. How extravagant is Christ, the only life giver? John 1.16 says of Jesus, for from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. Paul said in Romans 8.32, he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? The Apostle Paul said in Ephesians 1, 3, that God has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. The Apostle Peter said that according to the mercy of God, quote, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept where? In heaven for you. I like what David says. King David himself writes in Psalm 16, verse 11, you make known to me the path of life. He's the life giver. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. What does that mean? Every day for all of eternity, something new to know about God because he's eternal. And after a million, billion, trillion years, you still won't have scratched the surface. By the way, I want you to know this. If we think back to Mephibosheth, he didn't choose life. He had no option to choose life. He was summoned by the king. He was pardoned by the king. And he was given life by the king. What part did Mephibosheth play? Nothing. He just received grace. John Calvin took Jesus' statement, I am the way and the truth and the life. He took it as a statement of the process of salvation. It's very interesting. He said it this way. Christ is the beginning and the middle and the end. And hence it follows that we ought to begin with him, to continue with him, and to end with him. Calvin also wrote, Christ stepped in. He took the punishment upon himself and bore the judgment due to sinners. With his own blood, he expiated the sins which made them enemies of God and thereby satisfied him. We look to Christ alone for divine favor and fatherly love. Why is Jesus our only hope? Because he's the only power holder. He is the way. He is the only covenant keeper. He is the truth. And he is the only life giver. He is the life. Because in Christ, you are like Mephibosheth. He went from a nobody to a nobleman. He went from nothing to everything. He went from poverty to prominence. He went from a loser to a lord. He went from a renegade to respected. He went from lost to loved. He went from condemned to commended. Listen, you're not just like Mephibosheth. You are the Mephibosheths of the Lord. You were the condemned ones But there is therefore now no what? Condemnation for those who were in Christ Jesus. You were spiritually lame, unable to get around, but you can walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. You had the wrong DNA. You had Adam's sin nature. But now if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. You were enemies of God, 
But while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. You were unworthy to even eat the scraps off the king's table. But in the grace of Christ, he declared in Luke 13 that people will come from east and west and north and south and recline at table in the kingdom of God. You are Mephibosheth. You came in your depravity. You came in your lost state. You came guilty of violating all of God's holiness. Your spiritual feet were lame. You could not outrun the judgment of God. Listen, you couldn't even stand up on your own self-righteousness. So your only option was to painfully bow down and humiliate yourself by presenting nothing whatsoever except helplessness. No saving merits, no good work. But by God's grace, you bowed down to the only one who could save you. Mephibosheth, the one who scatters shame. He lived his life in the shadow of condemnation, but I believe you will see him someday because I believe that not only did he receive the grace of David, he also received the grace of God. How do we know this? when he was still a nobody, when he was waiting essentially for what he thought would be his likely execution, his wife gave birth to a little boy. And Mephibosheth named him Micah, which means who is like God. He was expressing his trust, his hope, that his faith must be in God alone, that if I have any hope, if my little boy has any hope, it's not in David alone, it's in God alone. He's my only hope. And your faith and your hope and your future is placed solely in the hands of Christ alone. Or as our beloved forefathers of the Reformation would say, they would say, solus Christus, solus Christus, solus Christus. In Christ alone. In Christ alone. In Christ alone. He is the object of our faith. And to him be the glory. Our Father, we thank you for Christ. We thank you for the fact that we were the Mephibosheths, lame, condemned, unable to come to you except to come as those ready to be judged. And Lord, it is with gratitude and joy that right now we give you thanks for Christ because without him we are lost. And as John Calvin so rightly said, that faith in God is faith in Christ. And we would just pray for any who are here, Lord, who maybe have been brought here by a friend or family member that don't know Christ. He is the only way. He is the only truth. And he is the only life giver. And so we pray that you would impart that life even now, that you would be gracious, that the Holy Spirit would blow upon their hearts and souls would impart to them the faith that they need to see Christ for who he truly is, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the sovereign judge who alone can save. And we pray these things all for his glory. Amen.